Welcome back to part two of our podcast. I'm back in London at Delaney Lee Studios with Simon Hayes and Chris Monroe. In our first part, we looked at how they developed their love of sound, which led them to careers as sound mixers. And in this episode, we dig a little deeper with Chris and how he developed digital Maglis dailies. And with Simon, how adapting to each director's vision is as important as being open to new workflows. I began by playing a short clip from the James Bond film Tomorrow Never Dies, which was Chris's first of five Bond films. Your new telephone. Talk here, listen here. So that's what I've been doing wrong all these years. <laughs> Look, it also includes a fingerprint scanner and a 20,000 volt security system. And this I'm particularly proud of. The remote control for your car. Tap twice. One, two. Now, draw your finger very slowly across the pad to drive the car. Well, it's surprisingly difficult mm. to drive, but uh, with practice. Mm-hmm. Well, let's see how she responds to my touch. Thank you. understand each other. <laughs> Grow up, 007. So that was the wonderful Desmond Llewellyn as Q and Pierce Brosnan's second outing as James Bond. Uh, what are your memories from that film? And I know that's when you basically integrated a whole new yeah. process in terms of dailies. Yeah, very significant. So Goldeneye, if you look at the credits, it says made entirely in analog. But by the time we got to doing Tomorrow Never Dies, they wanted to shorten the post-production period by half. It was important that the film had a Thanksgiving release, and I think we finished shooting it in July. So we wanted to bring in a lot of digital processes. It was the first one to be edited non-linear. It was edited on Avid, and one of the things that I introduced from it was Maglis Dailies. I had already been using Maglis Dailies on other productions, but I introduced it to the Bond, and that was the first time. And that was where, you know, for those that weren't in that, period where even though we were recording on quarter inch, the quarter inch used to be transferred to 35mm magnetic and the editors would edit the 35mm magnetic only three track along with the 35mm film. And what would happen in dailies is that the 35mm mag would run in sync with the film and we'd watch dailies. Well now in my process there was going to be no 35mm magnetic and so I developed a process where we could run the sound from then a DA88 8-track machine in sync with the projector, which was showing film. And that was how we saw dailies. And that was how the process worked. I already, by this stage, had a post-production company um, called Soundstation where we were very involved in digital non-linear post. And the whole idea was that the post-production was all going to be done digitally. Quite a significant saving in terms of 35 millimeters. Huge, uh, huge saving. stock. Yeah, huge saving. And, but also there was a speed thing as well because it meant, you know, that we were using timecode locked and I would do this thing to convert the biphase from the projector into timecode because the projectors obviously didn't have any timecode on them. So how did they get the sync point uh, for each? So what I did was I had this system that I devised for a Palm Pilot. And on set, um, I had a Palm Pilot which would log all the timecodes. And then I could produce from that, which was basically an EDL. That then would auto-batch digitize into the Avid from the sound. So the sound could be put in from DAT tapes into the Avid, but it would automatically choose which bits it wanted for auto-batch digitizing. Then what would happen is that the assistant editor would then sync them up very easily in the normal way that they sunk up within the Avid, and then he would output an audio output of all the edited pieces which matched the film with a time code from one hour to whatever the end of it was. I, th- I think, if I can just jump in there, 
you're taking a massive, massive professional risk saying that that will work because it, at the point, no one had done it. Oh, everybody it, said it wouldn't work. Well, exactly. <laughs> and it's, a, you know, yeah. when, when I've spoken to Jeff Wexler about when he first moved on to that, right. he took a lot of heat from the transfer base. Oh, and, yes. the, and, you know, and it sounds to me like you took a risk that actually could have ruined your career if it hadn't worked because you made basically promises that that a process that was untested could work that was going to save a lot of money um and it had to work didn't it chris yeah but i'd already put a lot into sound station which we don't you know our first yeah. machine which was a, which was a sound station they were 130,000 pounds for one machine mm. you know when you look at the cost of pro tools now and i think it did 8 or 16 tracks yeah um, that was that was kind of where we started. So I'd very much gone down that digital route, but also I had introduced very much the idea of auto-conforming, of the way that auto-conforming worked. Now, auto-conforming was quite a difficult thing at that stage because um, bearing in mind that, and, and this was from the 35 mil basis, because we were doing a non-linear digital post when editors were still cutting on film. Mm and cutting with 35mm magnetic. And the problem is when the editor cut, although you put time code on, you used to put time code on track three of the 35mm mag, so you'd have two audio tracks and a time code track. But when the editor cut the film, he didn't know if he was cutting through a time code frame. Yeah. You know, often the sound and the, and the frames wouldn't be exact. Yes. And so we developed this idea for auto-conforming. Auto we developed this idea of not calculating from where the cut was but calculating from where the first full frame was and then counting samples back to make our EDL and this was I guess around eight, 88 we were doing that and then one of the devices we worked with we worked with a telecine house to do this we didn't want to put one of our sound stations in there because it cost 130 grand mm. and so we actually decided to buy a Sadie to do it because it was cheap and then all of a sudden, everybody was using Sadies to do this. Um, it became the, the kind of standard. Yeah. And then, of course, we moved on and the whole thing progressed. I'd already put all my efforts into the idea of not necessarily digital for the sake of digital, but for the sake of streamlining the post-process to the point where we could manipulate sound in the way that we do now. Mm. And the Palm Pilot is gone? Dad is gone? Well, the Palm Pilot's gone, but interestingly... All of the machines to make their sound reports still use that same basis idea. That you know, it's still it's still the same way that pretty much every machine uses today to make its sound reports. Simon, you were talking earlier about Drew Coonan and a movie called The Secret Garden, that was directed by Agnieszka Holland. That's I right. Believe. We're just going to hear a clip from copying Beethoven. Why are you so frank with me, Arnold? Because I esteem you as one of the greatest... Don't flatter me! Why do you wish to be near me? Because... Because it makes me believe that I too can write music. Music? Vibrations on the air are the breath of God speaking to man's soul. Music is the language of God. Ed Harris is Beethoven. Dan Kruger is Anna Holtz. Uh, set in 1824, Anna Holtz was the copyist assisting Beethoven in the completion of the Ninth Symphony. It was shot in Hungary, Budapest, and here in the UK. And this was quite a large film in terms of uh, playback, I'd imagine. And this was your first time working with Agnieszka. Am I pronouncing but that right? By you the way? are. You're, you're absolutely dead on. And before I get into it, can I just say, listening to that clip on the headphones here, I still love the way those Sherps sound. I mean, you just can't beat a Sherps close up. And that's what we were listening to then. It's just a, a, a wonderful sound. And if I can just say, Ed Harris, I was fortunate enough to work with him on a film. He just constantly surprises me in his performance in all the different movies he's done from Pollock to uh, Beethoven to The Right Stuff. He's in Westworld at the moment and a very 
kind and generous man who is incredibly hard on himself. Yep. He hates when he screws up a line, but is very conscious of the technical side of things. Now, obviously, he's directed and he understands what everybody's role is. Unfortunately, not all actors are like that. With Beethoven and with that performance, I know he researched that, and I'm sure he went through a lot of pain, and you may have witnessed some of that. I did, and what a professional, what a wonderful actor. He had a tough job on copying Beethoven. There was lots and lots. I mean, basically, he's he's covering the period where Beethoven goes mad, so it's obviously extremely emotional. But also, he was writing music as we were shooting, and so he would tinkle a little bit on the piano. Um, perhaps he would play the violin, and Ed doesn't play any instruments. So what we had to do was we were looping in phrases that he would play on the piano or phrases that he would play on the violin. And these were tiny, tiny little phrases and they would have to be in sync. So for instance, you know, my sound utility, Robin, on that movie, that was my first musical. I didn't realize at that point that you could ask for a music editor to be there doing Pro Tools playback. You know, I thought that it was just something we'd have to cover. And it wasn't a big budget movie. So... Uh, it was uh, one of the fights that I had was bringing Robin out to Hungary. They said, no, 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 we just want you and Arthur and we'll give you a Hungarian utility. I've always been good at winning those fights. I'm good at negotiating and, you know, and I won't go away without my team. So Robin ended up coming with us and it's very, very lucky he did because of his technical expertise. I mentioned earlier he'd been through film school. One of the interesting things about Robin was he had recognized very early on in film school that he was the only guy that wanted to do sound in the whole year. Not only had he mixed everyone's films, but he'd also done the sound posts on everyone's films. So I had this young sound utility guy who was excellent, not just at production sound, but at sound post. And Robin came and we basically used a couple of different programs. One of them is a free program called Soundplant, where we would get phrases that we needed to play into Ed into an earwig and we would apply them to different keys on a computer. So let's say Ed picks up a violin and starts playing it. As the bow touches the strings, Robin would play into his earwig this phrase that he's going to play, and he would literally mime the phrase based on what he's hearing. Then he'd do a couple of lines of dialogue, which Arthur catches on the boom, and then he'd move over to the piano, and he'd start tinkling on the piano, and the same thing would, that would happen. Robin would have the next phrase ready on assigned to a different key on the computer keyboard and play it back to Ed in, in an earwig. We'd induction loop the set out there. So essentially, it was a tough job for sound, but we nailed it. I'd worked with Agnieszka before. She didn't remember me because I was just the utility many years earlier with Drew Coonan, but I knew her personality and she is an absolute perfectionist. She's like me and like all of us are. She's OCD about what she does and I recognize that and I supported her. But what Agnieszka doesn't do is she doesn't suffer fools gladly. And we came into this with her not, you know, she didn't know me or my team and she was perhaps in the first couple of days a little bit untrusting and didn't know whether we were going to nail it. Same with Ed. And within two or three days, it became very, very clear that we were some of the strongest, most supportive people on the on the unit for them, and that we were nailing what they needed to do, which was technically very, very difficult to achieve. Um, that was our first musical together, me and Robin and Arthur, and we've gone on, you know, we kind of specialize in musicals now. It wasn't what I set out to do, but it's just what's happened. And that was certainly the testing ground for what we set out to achieve and what we've ended up doing. And within that track, there's such simplicity, beautiful dynamic range, and I think it was doves in the background as yeah. well. It's just a masterful scene, just two actors at their peak. When it came to the playback sequence with the Ninth Symphony, how did you uh, approach that? The Ninth Symphony playback team, we eventually, on that, it was so big and we had so much dialogue intertwined with it. That was actually the only piece where we had a music editor come out from England. I think it was Andy Glenn who came out to do it. And basically, he came out with Pro Tools and he did Pro Tools playback on that so that me and Robin and Arthur could concentrate on all of the dialogue and the links. And so that was, yeah, that was Pro Tools playback. And that was the only part of the film, actually, that we didn't handle the playback. It was handled by 
music editor so that we could get all of the interlinking dialogue without having to ADR anything. And, you know, one of the great things about Agnieszka was she didn't, again, I love working with directors that don't want to loop stuff. Ed didn't want to loop anything. Agnieszka didn't want to loop anything. And they were 100% supportive. I remember a time where we were tracking. It was only a little track on a wooden floor in a Hungarian flat somewhere. And the floor was creaking. And, you know, and I said to the grip, we did the rehearsal. I said, you've got to do something about that. And so he said, okay, look, we'll put a tracking board underneath the track. So Agnieszka waited patiently. The boys brought in the tracking board to try and spread the load over the joist, which is what we always do when we've got creaks on a wooden floor. We put it in, it creaked again. And the DP said, look, we're just going to have to go with this. And Agnieszka said, no, listen, you don't understand. This dialogue's important to me. We're not just going to have to go with it. What we're going to do is you've got to find me a way of getting me with this shot without that move. And we did it without the track. And that's the type of set that we were on. They were completely supportive of sound. And those are... It's wonderful to have that type yeah. of support. And you need that at times because sometimes as a department, you feel like you're that lone person that's curating mm. what's such so important in terms of performance. There's yeah. so many people there for the visuals. I'm going to move on to Ridley Scott, a filmmaker that you both have worked with. And we're going to listen to a clip from Black Hawk Down. Secure perimeter. Roger that. You all right? Yeah, I'm good. You're locked and loaded. Any skitties come around these corners, you watch our backs. Hey, where's the rescue squad? We're it. Chris, uh, 2001, Black Hawk Down, director Ridley Scott. That is looking at a special ops forces that went in to get the warlord Mohammed Fahed Adid in Somalia. Tell me a little bit about that project and obviously... Simon, you've worked with Ridley, so if you want to, you know, be a part of this in terms of your experiences and the films that you've worked with him, because you've worked with him on Prometheus and also The Counselor. But 2001, what technology were you using? Because from what I hear about Ridley Scott, multiple cameras, a very difficult scenario. Yeah, very interesting. I worked with Ridley, of course, on commercials, you know, years before and, you know, and, and knew him and worked with him. But um, I particularly knew that he liked to work with multiple cameras. Sometimes, you know, it wasn't uncommon to have 12 cameras. He'd sit in his tent with all the monitors up and we'd shoot the whole thing. Now, those 12 cameras might not all be on the same piece of action or the same piece of dialogue. So what would happen, for instance, on Black Hawk Down was we'd have the helicopter down in the middle of the set and on all four corners of the set, which could be, you know, half a mile away, we'd have different teams on the perimeter who were communicating with each other. So one of the first things I'd had to do there was to make the Motorola, the vintage Motorola radios that we had practical. So one of my team there, Jim McBride, had said about making all of these Motorola practical so that we could shoot these perhaps four scenes together where they were talking to each other on the radios and have a couple of cameras on each of those little sequences. And this was also where I first needed multi-track. And I did that film pretty much with two um, DA88 eight-tracks. So I had 16 tracks, but all recorded onto high eight tapes because that was the only way then of getting, you know, time code and multi-track. So it was the first of the kind of multi-track films. We boomed a lot of it. We'd have booms on those sections, but of course we also used radio mics. The other interesting thing about the multi-track is it also meant that because we were in Morocco and we shot a lot of it on an airbase, we had access to firing ranges. So we were able to record some of those gunshots using live ammunition, which we did in multi-track. So the idea is I could put mics on the target, I could put mics for the midway point for the ballistic crack, I could put mics on the gun to get all the action and the bang. So a lot of the sound effects that we recorded were multi-track. We also had a big, big cast. And another thing that we'd set up for Ridley was, again, the Magnus Dailies process. This time we did it with a Pro Tools linked to the Avid. And we had our editors out there with us. And we had a, a whole editorial team and we had a Dailies team. But also what it meant was, because we had such a big cast, anything that we were a little bit unsure of from the action, I could also record from 
any of the actors in that setup. So we also kind of, it was kind of the first thing of doing location ADR, if you like, at the same time. So often there was stuff that was perhaps, you know, there was too much effects noise or whatever on some of the stuff or I wasn't quite happy with it. I could go in and um, re-record it as kind of location ADR. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of pyrotechnics in that film, so it's always a challenge to be able to extract the, the dialogue from that. But let me just say that one of the great things about really shooting multiple cameras is that because, and he does that so that he can just set those pyrotechnics once and they're all set and shoot all the scenes that see it at the same time. So we do have a certain amount of sync of those pyrotechnics as well, which is great from scene to scene. And with the two DAD it given you 16 tracks, they were locked together then. How big was the crew then? We had a four-man crew, but we also had two guys from, two local Moroccan guys who were great. So basically I had a, a six-man crew. I also had a second unit team who, interestingly, I had known from my um, very early days with Sam Peckinpah because the second unit was pretty much all Croatian. And I actually had Croatian team who'd worked with me way back then on Cross of Iron. And with Ridley Scott, uh, Simon, you did Prometheus, and that was uh, a film which was shot, was it here in the UK and also Iceland? Helmets, communications, multiple cameras, I presume? Yep. The great thing is, I was approached, when I started getting busy, I was approached at an AMPS meeting by Chris and Ivan Sharrock, who kind of took me under their wing and have given me lots and lots of advice over the years. And one of the things that I knew about Ridley, having spoken to Chris and, you know, and, you know, almost been mentored by Chris, was how Ridley uses cameras, multiple cameras, how to work with him. You know, we just touched on it in conversations. And so I knew when I first went in with Ridley that this wasn't going to be a boom-only job. And at that point, anyway, I changed my workflow. We were, we were shooting multiple cameras. But I knew that Ridley was not going to give any quarter in terms of what he was going to do with the cameras for sound. He was going to shoot the movie his way, and we had to fall in line with that. And that means you use radios. You use booms as well, but you use radios. And you have everyone mic'd all of the time, and you better make sure the mics are working well and they're well-rigged. And can I just say as well, Ridley is a craftsman with three cameras or four cameras. He's not just shooting a wide, mid, and tight because he can. Each one of those cameras is telling a different part of the story and what it enables him to do. I mean, he's so creative with the cameras, it enables him to run very long scenes without cutting. And he almost uses multiple cameras the way that you would in TV with a vision mix he's almost vision mixing in his own mind with the four cameras and it enables him to let the actors run the scene so he's not having to chop the scene up into cuts to change the camera position so the first thing is with Prometheus we knew that they were going to have to wear helmets and we knew that we were going to have to devise a comm system and that's what we did but unfortunately what happened on the first day of shooting he wanted the actors to all wear these kind of skull caps that astronauts wear. And so we'd had the skull caps made by collaborating with costume, and we'd had the DPAs put just, you know, in the forehead where the skull cap meets the forehead between the eyebrows and the hairline, and they just sounded great. And we'd done a few tests, and it was great. Anyway, the first day of shooting, one of the actors says, look, I don't, Ridley, I don't like the skull cap. You know, I, it just it doesn't look right. So this actor in the first rehearsal does it because he likes his hair, takes, takes the skull cap off. Anyway, does the first rehearsal. Of course, you know what happens. Then. Yeah, everybody. All of them want to take their skull caps off. So suddenly, we've got this system which has sounded fantastic. We're ready to shoot. I'm thinking, my God, this is, this is going to sound great. And suddenly, the whole thing falls apart because the DPA positions have moved. You know, by the way, these helmets are sealed. So not only are the actors having to use the DPAs for us to record the film dialogue, the DPAs are there for them to be able to hear each other. They're their own comm system, and we've got earpieces in the actors, so the actors are wearing a transmitter and a receiver. We're doing a sub-mix for the comms, which, of course, is going to be different at different times from the dailies mix. So, you know, I'm doing two mixes at the same time. We've got Ridley on a push to talk handheld so that he can talk directly into the comms so that when he's giving a direction, the actor won't have to take the helmet off. We've got the first AD on a push to talk so that he can tell the actors, no, 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 hang on a second, go back to first position without them saying, we can't hear what you're saying. Because because they literally had astronauts' helmets on. So anyway, we suddenly, Ridley says, well, what are you going to do about this? They're, they're not using, Simon, they're not using skull caps. That's it. So you better think of a new plan. 
So we put the DPA into a position in vision right around their collar. And it looked beautiful. It looked like, you know, and the fact is, is that astronauts, you know, our get out of jail free card was these astronauts are clearly wearing comms. They clearly have to talk to each other. What's wrong with seeing a microphone? So we put this DPA beautifully in vision and it looked like part of the astronaut suit. Costume went crazy. <laughs> that, Ridley, have you seen where they put the mic? We can see it. We can see it. Ridley very calmly said, let me have a look at that. He said, freeze frame. You know, he's looking at the monitor and the costume person's standing there saying, look, that, that's the microphone there. Can you see it? Ridley said, what's the problem with that? And she said, uh, "She said, well, look, you know, people are going to say that they've seen the mics. He said, I've got two emails for people that make uh, complaints like that. He said, one is get a life and two is beep, beep. <laughs> it's interesting we've we've both worked with Ridley Paul Greengrass and Guy when we talk about Chris and I both having worked with Ridley you know one thing that trained me for working with Ridley was I'd just previously worked with Paul Greengrass and if there is any director that's going to train you for working with Ridley's workflow which is multiple cameras not cutting scenes, allowing the actors to work without putting pressure on them to uh, to chop up a scene into pieces, it's Paul. For Paul, you've almost got to do the whole thing for real, in real time. And it's another thing that Chris and I have, have got in common. We both work with Paul Greengrass. Well, in fact, we both work with Paul Greengrass, Ridley Scott, and Guy Ritchie, because I did the two um, Sherlock Holmes films with Guy. For, for different reasons. Firstly, the most creative, but also the most challenging for sound directors in the UK, well, if Paul, not the world. Paul, uh, the first film I did with Paul Greengrass was United 93, and that was a challenge, emotionally and technically. We'd taken this um, this aircraft fuselage onto the set at Pinewood. I don't know if, if you know much about United 93, but the way that Paul works is very much that there isn't so much a script. It is more of a There's performance. A, the, the script is a guide. The script is a script guide. Is and, that's, guide exactly. and, and, and that's what he tells the actors. Exactly. The, the script is a guide, but do it in your own words. So on United 93, the actors really hadn't met before they got on the plane. Paul's big thing of keeping them separate. He gave each of them a portfolio of the person they were representing. And they also had the opportunity to call the relatives of the people they were representing. And then they would come onto the plane and the performance would start. They all knew the bits that they wanted. Interestingly, Simon mentioned earlier about overlaps and hoping the editor was going to get him out of trouble. Well, I had a similar thing with Paul, is that we'd set up this whole kind of idea on this aircraft fuselage of how we were going to work. And then Paul said, what I want you to do is I want you to get all the sound effects to be playing all the way through so that all the actors feel like they're on a plane. I want you know, on everything to be playing. You know, the sound of the takeoff, the sound of the engines, all the noises of the plane. All the plane. Oh my goodness, how am I going to do this? I thought, well, you know... Oh, it's I, a, it's I get, a sound mixer's worst I'll, nightmare. I'll get, I'll get the editor involved. Yeah. And, um, you know, maybe the editor will say it's a problem. Well, the editor did say it's a problem, but he also said, well, we've got to find a way of doing it. So what we did is we wired the whole of the aircraft up with all the speakers in the aircraft... I wired up um, to try and get an even balance of all the sound. We made up a whole loop with a time thing of the engine starting up, the plane taxiing, the plane in flight, all of those sounds, and we had them as a timeline. So we knew when we'd start. The way that we shot the film very much was that we would start at point zero, as it were, when they got on the plane, and then we'd do hour-long takes. We shot on film. And the way that it would work is we'd have two cameras working and two cameras being reloaded. So we'd start the first camera and then, I don't know, a minute later, the second camera would start. So that when the first camera ran out of film, the operator would just pick up another camera whilst that was being reloaded. So that we could shoot, rather than 10 minute bags long, we could shoot for an hour at a time, which is what we did. The scenes were so traumatic that we probably only used to do two takes a day. And the way that it would work is that I would, again, I recorded it multi-track. I can't recall, but I'm pretty certain I recorded that also on DA-88s because I don't think there were any big multi-tracks available then. In fact, I'm certain I did. And um, I mic'd up the whole plane. I also had two boom operators in the plane. And Paul would give me a list of all of the conversations we needed to record and would be listening for and I would be recording and I would pre-fade looking for all these conversations. When I found it, I would then mix into that. That would go to the camera operator's headphones and to Paul's headphones and everybody else. So the camera operators would then go to that 
bit of dialogue. After United 93, the next film I did with him was Captain Phillips, which was a similar kind of thing. In between, Simon did Green Zone with Paul. Actually, we're just okay. going to take a clip from Green Zone. All right, next up's Al Mansour, Baghdad. It looks like it's some kind of underground storage site. We've got about 12 clicks of open highway to the city, but there's a lot of activity on that road, so tell everybody to keep their heads up. All right. Chief. All right, we're going to go, Kim. Yeah. Let me get all the lead teams up, right? Yeah, yeah. Martin Brown, CIA. Roy Miller. Yeah, I know. I saw you at the meeting. You're going to the Al Mansour site in Baghdad. Yeah. You're wasting your time. UN biological team hit it two months ago. There's nothing there. Here's my card. You're right. This thing doesn't add up. Iraqis don't fight. They don't use WMD. Let us walk in here, find a goddamn cupboard's bear. Something wrong here. We gotta figure out what it is. Find anything. You got my number. It was uh, 2010, Green Zone, and uh, Matt Damon playing Ray Miller, who's on a mission to find WMDs in Iraq. And that was Brendan Gleeson, who is an Irish man with an American accent. How did he do? He was wonderful. I mean, I've got to say, listening to that clip, it's actually kind of made me feel quite emotional because it's made me realize that that was actually a huge, huge turning point in my technical ability and the way that I am able to mix film. And if I can just talk about that for a moment, up until Green Zone, I had spent every moment on a film set trying to record perfection. When we listened to the clip earlier of copying Beethoven, and I said, no, listen to that, Sherps. The clip that we just heard then was very, very different. It was extremely powerful, but the way it sounded was very, very different. It wasn't a Sherps, it was some DPA. Everyone was wearing a DPA. It was radio mics. And what I realized, firstly, was that the game was changing. We were starting to use multiple cameras on everything. Secondly, the way that Paul was going to work was exactly as Chris has just described. And I knew this because I'd already spoken to Chris about 93 and about his technical challenges. And... I said to you at the beginning of this interview that I was nervous of using radio mics. And, and, you know, for the first half of my career, we prided ourselves, me, Arthur and Robin, we were the guys that did it on the booms. And we were able to because we were shooting a single camera and we were shooting independent movies. And we were the guys that would do it all on booms. We were known for it. And there came a point in my career around about the time I started getting offered bigger movies, around about the time when those bigger movies all started shooting on three cameras or two as a minimum, and around about the time when I started working with people like Paul and Ridley. What I realized after the first day at work with Paul Greengrass was this search for sonic perfection that I'd been having this love affair with for the whole first half of my career had to be put aside. It wasn't going to work. And if I searched for sonic perfection with Paul Greengrass, I wasn't going to get him anything. What I quickly, I can remember in the hotel evening, in the hotel room that evening where I assessed my first day and I had this, almost like this epiphany. I need to change. I need to give this director what he wants and I need to support him in the way that he wants to make this film and I need to make sure that I'm not a hindrance, that I'm a help. And the first thing that I've got to do is I've got to accept that I'm not going to have audio perfection the challenge of this film isn't getting the very, very best quality dialogue possible. The challenge of this film is getting dialogue that doesn't have to be re-recorded. And that was my mantra for working with Paul. And I achieved that. And what we did was we accepted very, very early on that we were going to have to use radios on everyone. Luckily, we had uh, most of the cast were wearing helmets. So we put DPAs in the rim of their helmets so that they could take their helmets off. Because, of course, the moment you say to Paul, Paul, listen, we got a mic in the helmet. Does that guy have to take his helmet off? He's going to say, well, I'm sure he would take his helmet off. You know, I turn to the actor, you'd take your helmet off on this, wouldn't you? Yeah, you, so, so, you know, so we've got transmitters inside the helmets 
And here's the deal. What I didn't realise about Marines and Army was the commanding officer often takes his helmet off. The guys under him leave their helmets on. So if the commanding officer is going to tell the guys what to do, he's going to take his helmet off and explain to them, so what we're going to do is we're going to get in the vehicles, we're going to drive down there, we're going to hit that factory. And as he's making this explanation, he'll take his helmet off. And then when he goes to go get in the Humvee, he'll put his helmet back on. The guys have all kept their helmets on. So what we had to do was we had to make sure that Matt always had two microphones on. He had the microphone in his helmet, which sounded wonderful as a DPA is going to just in the forehead there in an army helmet. But then we also, he was wearing, you know the way those special forces guys wear those kind of Moroccan, those Middle Eastern scarves? Matt was always wearing one of those. And we we also had a DPA hidden in there, which actually ended up sounding really, really nice. We had it sandwiched in and stuck in. So we always double mic'd him. I think it can be driven to absolute madness in pursuit of sonic excellence. Yeah. And there are times where you just have to let the performance... What I realized, Peter, was that I had gone through the first part of my career saying, this is my style. And I talked to you earlier about learning from people and taking ideas from other mixers. And I arrived at this thing that I felt was the Simon Hayes style, very grandly. What I've realized in the last few years, in the last 20, 25 movies, is that you can't have your own style. What you have to do is a style for the movie you're working and with. Adapt and adapt. And a style for genre. the director you're working exactly. with and adapt for the genre. And that is the mark of a truly excellent mm. sound mixer. And I think that's the point. I think the sound or the picture actually means nothing. Yeah. What is important is the performance, yeah. always. Yeah. And that's what you always have to put first. Well, and I think that's the... You're absolutely right. And that's something that we forget about a lot in the film business, in every single department. What we all forget about is that we're all there for one reason only. The truly magical and unique thing that's happening on the film set is the performance. And every Mm. single department is there to support that. And the moment a department forgets that, they stop being collaborative. Agreed. And it is... Because we are all, we are myopic in our own way, but we need everybody coming together with that singular goal that makes the whole film. And there is nothing like that montage that I played at the beginning of films that impacted both of you. Those clips still move me. Julie Christie, you know, or Slim Pickens in Dr. Strangelove, you know, and listening to Matt Damon in Green Zone. And I'd like to play a clip now from Gravity, uh, which... Uh, Chris, you won the Academy Award for in uh, 2013. Explorer, this is Houston. Go ahead, Houston. Mission abort. Repeat. Mission abort. Explorer, this is Kowalski confirming visual contact with debris. Debris is from a BSE sat. Repeat. I have Dr. Stone requesting faster transport. We have to go. We have to go, go, go. Kennedy reports meteorological conditions. Go, go. Explorer, copy. Explorer, Dr. Stone requesting faster transport to Bay Area. Explorer, do you copy? Explorer, permission to retrieve Dr. Stone. Don't listen to my voice. You need to focus. I'm losing visual of you. In seconds, I won't be able to track you. You need to detach. I can't see you anymore. Do it now. Houston, I lost visual, Dr. Stone. Gripping. So, once again, Ed Harris comes up. (laughs) He gets around that guy. Um, Anyway, once again, uh, a film that is very technically challenging for a sound mixer because even though you're dealing with one, two, three actors, well, two actors really. Two two real actors. Yeah, George Clooney and Sandra Bullock. But I would imagine there was a lot going on behind the scenes in your department. A lot. Um, you know, I mean, first I first got involved with that film on a very, very early stage when um, Rob Downey was going to be in it, and um, and I met Alfonso Cuarón. From the moment I met him, I knew I had to do the film. You know, he the first thing he said to me is, "No, no sound in space. So, what are you going to do?" And um, and you know, we started to talk about, it and I got more and more interested, and had regular kind of conversations with Alfonso for a long time before the film actually got greenlit. It started off as a fairly smallish film. 
And um, and in fact, I was asked, um, because there were bits of prep that needed to be done and bits of, you know, would I be able to come in, you know, on just, you know, maybe a couple of days a week to start it off, which suited me at the time. And I and that was the way I started. But from the first week, I think I did three days the first week. And then from then on, I was on every day. There was just so much to do. You know, part of it was just the way that it was shot, which is incredible. The way that um, the DP Chivo had set this up in this kind of light box idea where everything matched in timing as we were going around around the world, around the earth. And all the cameras were mounted on um, on robotic arms, like the kind that were made that um, they uh, used to make cars with. And also the actor was also on a robotic arm. And we had to sync it all together in some way with a timeline that we had for all of the lighting, all of the sound. Everything had to fit in. So we worked very much with visual effects because the devices that we used, we couldn't actually use timecode. We had to use MIDI and convert the timecode. There was a lot of conversion to do to make everything sync up. We also originally started the idea where Alfonso had an idea that we were going to build little booths on the stage where all the voices that she spoke to, um, the actors would be in there so that it could be live and it could be fresh and not feel like she was performing to a recording. That didn't work out because of actor availability and because often George wasn't available when Sandra Bullock was available and so on and so forth. So we ended up pre-recording everything at different speeds with different actors. And what we did is we, we made up loops and put them all on a keyboard so that what we could do is we could play back to the actors the voices they were interacting with, but not necessarily always the same performance. So we would have at the lower end of the keyboard, we'd have the slower performances, and at the higher end, we'd have the faster performances. We all sat in like a mission control where myself, Chivo, Alfonso, could all communicate with each other whilst we were shooting. And Alfonso would say, do a faster one, do a slower one. And so we'd play the faster performances. Sometimes when the voice had to come back to her, we'd overlap it. Sometimes we'd give a pause. What we'd try to do is to always make Sandra feel like she was acting to another actor. And so we would change things. We had a mic on her and the mics that you see in shot were made by us, as Simon was saying, that we actually made practical mics, which worked for her. We also had a mic in the Snoopy in the, in the inner helmet. And we would record very much that way. But as well as just recording, our major, my major job on that was very much to do with communications, to making the communications work and to make the time code, to make everything sync so that we could actually drive everything to work together. The lights, the cameras, everything all had to be on the same sort of driving timeline, which, as I say, couldn't actually be time code it was event it was originally time code we had to do all kinds of midi conversions along the way to make that work and you were talking about the robotic rigs uh how noisy were they and how did they impact dialogue they were pretty noisy they were pretty noisy we originally started off that sandra would have the glass screen on her helmet which was going to work very well for us but eventually, for a number of reasons, they decided to remove the glass screen so she wasn't inside. I I used, and I know a lot of people listening to this will disagree with this process, but very much for Alfonso's benefit, I used cedar quite a bit to try to see which of these noises could be eliminated and how it could work. And so in a non-destructive way, I would use cedar and try to see what noises we could eliminate and try to get the cleanest track we could. But I would also always do a raw version at the same time. And just going on from that's an interesting point you bring up because it's become more of a conversation in terms of a tool to be used on production. What are your feelings on that? It's a tool. It has to be used carefully. If you'd have spoken to me 15 years ago about this, I would have said it's the worst possible thing we can do on a set. I would have used the mantra that we shouldn't be EQing anything, we shouldn't be using bass roll-off, we certainly shouldn't be processing anything, we should leave it all to the guys in post. The fact is the game's changed, and we have to accept that. And if we don't all move forward with the technology available, we're going to be dinosaurs. Now, we're, we're shooting multiple tracks, we're shooting multiple cameras, we're often, I know all three of us are put in front of green screens with wind machines and the film set isn't what it used to be. We've got cameras which have got fans in. You know, we've got all of these different challenges now which we have to work out elegant solutions for. And if I can give you an example of that, 
okay, Isotope RX. Of course, we shouldn't be using it on the set, but I was presented with an impossible situation on Guardians of the Galaxy where we were on top of a building in the city of London on a Sunday and the church bell started ringing down below and they weren't going to stop. The director, James Gunn, doesn't like to ADR. Okay, even, you, you, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy is a big movie. You'd expect that there'd be a certain amount of ADR, not with James Gunn. He doesn't want to ADR anything. And so he basically said to the producers, guys, this isn't going to work. We need to find out when the bells are going to stop and we need to stand down the crew, send them off for a long breakfast. Perhaps we'll start again in two, two and a half, three hours. The producers came up to me and said, look, you've, you've got to tell him that this is going to work because we really, we're not going to make the day if we stand down. We need your support here, Simon. So what do you think? And I said, well, hang on a second. Let's do a rehearsal. Do, let's do a rehearsal and then give me 10 minutes. So we did a rehearsal of the dialogue um, and I knew, you know, thank you, Chris Newman, when you said it's all about signal to noise because uh, that was a quote which, which, which Chris came out with right at the end of his career. He said, I've realized in the modern world it's all about signal to noise. And what I can tell you about this situation that I was presented with on Guardians of the Galaxy was we were close micing everyone. We had good radio mics on them. We also had Sherp Super Seamits. But what I did was I recorded the rehearsal on the radio mics. I then said, guys, give me 10 minutes. And we put it into Isotope RX and listened to the church bells, which were probably about 50 dB below the peaks of the dialogue. So they, you know, they weren't super loud because we had close radio mics. But what we were able to do was to draw circles around the bells on the Isotope RX, see whether we could remove the bells without it creating artifacts on the dialogue. We could. I was able to go back to James Gunn and say, James, listen, we can do this. We can get this scene. Ignore the church bells. I've just done a very, very quick process. And I know that the guys in post, the dialogue editors, are going to do a really, really elegant process, much, much better than the very quick one I've done. And they will get rid of these bells without you having to loop. I can give you my guarantee. And that process there enabled us to shoot a scene, make the day, not have to do what James didn't want to do, which was ADR or anything. And so there's a great example of how on the set now, if we're not using all of the tools available, we're hamstringing ourselves. And, and m the most important thing is we're not supporting our directors. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, because, you know, dialogue editors all traditionally start so late, um, it's very, very important to have the best cutting copy available because everybody, you know, studio, everybody's working with that cutting copy. So you want, you really do want the best cutting copy you can get. Um, you know, these days, you know, we, we call ourselves production sound mixers, but in a way, the kind of mixing aspect has become if you like, less important because, um, you know, we know that almost always our ISOs are going to be remixed to another mix, which will finally be in the film. What I like to think is now, as well as being production sound mixers, as well as that, we're also expert track layers. We're doing two jobs. Yeah, there's a lot of that that happens. And, and But at the same time, what I would say is, is that um, we are becoming, uh, you know, we, the, the mix. A few years ago, people started saying, well, the mix isn't quite so important because, we're, you know, the dialogue editor is going to go to the ISOs, they're mm -hmm. going to remix in Pro Tools. However, I would say that we've come full circle with that mm -hmm. now because something very interesting is happening. They're now starting to do the dialogue premix in Avid. They're not mm -hmm. actually doing a proper dialogue premix. And so actually, even if the dialogue editor is going to go into all of the ISOs, which happens on big films, and rightly so, use Pro Tools to, to do a great mix, our production sound mix is going to sit for so long in that Avid mix, and it's going to become the dialogue premix. It's going to be what's used to do the audience test screenings. It's going to be used for the execs at the studio. And so I Definitely. think that it's come full circle, and our production sound mix, even on big movies, still has relevance and is still yep. really important. But I think our job has expanded. I don't know about you, I find myself doing more prep on films now as well. Mm. And I know you do the same thing, is that we do like a lot of prep with costume because we have to mic everybody. You know, I, I mean, I like a lot to pre-rig the costumes. Yeah. I love the idea of having costumes pre-rigged so that all the actor does is put the costume on, the mic's already in it. I do a lot of stuff of, um, I always try to do tech recce's, for instance. I do a lot of stuff, you know, as far as the tech recce's are concerned. Well, you're absolutely right. I would say that the job that we're doing now is far more design-based. We're not just mixing. We are no. we are looking at the whole process. And like you, I like to collaborate with costume very early on, and I want to rig mics. You know, this is all down to this shift in workflow of, sh mm -hmm. of shooting multi-camera. Certainly expectations within our own department are so much more in terms of what we are trying to do on each and every day. 
over here in the UK, there's a different staffing level now uh, in the US. Traditionally, we have a three-person crew. You've been able to adopt a bigger sound crew. Maybe you could just touch on that because the term first assistant sound, second assistant sound has been become part of the vocabulary here. You're talking to the right two guys because both Chris and I championed the the use of two booms very early on. And uh, I was very lucky that I started with Guy Ritchie and we always ran two booms and Guy didn't have to ADR anything on Lockstock. He didn't have to ADR anything on Snatch. So by the time he started getting slightly bigger movies, he'd become used to having two booms. Now, the fact is at that point, we were, we had two booms running, but they weren't two boom operators. It was a, a boom operator and a utility who were booming everything. When we started getting slightly more money on films with Guy, I was able to say, listen, the utility guy is booming everything because of Guy's shooting style and the fact that he doesn't want to ADR anything. And we've proved that we don't have to if we use two booms. It's, we've, been proved, we've proved on two movies that you haven't had to loop one single line. If we can use two booms, you're going to save your ADR budget. But it's only fair now that the utility guy starts getting paid as a boom operator and we need to bring in another utility guy to actually put the carpet down and to, you know, and to help run the department. So that's how I started using two booms. I set the precedent with Guy. I wasn't available for one of his movies and he very rightly hired Chris to do it. And Chris was able to say, and I think I'm correct in saying, Absolutely Chris right. was able to say, we understand that Simon's always used two booms with Guy. We don't want to change anything in his mm. workflow. So, and I think that that's exactly. what happened. That's exactly what happened. But but what happened with the first as assistant sound, which was again something that Chris and I championed, it was the right thing to do at the right time in the UK. We all love and respect the title of boom operator and losing it broke our hearts in one way but it was a necessity because at that point in UK filmmaking boom operators wages were unfortunately not rising at the same uh, rate as the as the focus pullers who became first assistant camera and we also at that point we started shooting three cameras instead of one camera and the boom operator was potentially having to rig radios um uh, have an understanding of time code, helping the sound mixer with all of the time code coordination between the different cameras and the various, you know, lighting cues on the set. That suddenly the boom operator needed a wider skill set. We also, at that point, started shooting HD and you needed to be better at rigging radios because you could see more detail in the costumes. And if you weren't good at rigging radios and you didn't understand lights and shadows, you'd get caught out. And so what we decided to do was, was to exhibit to perhaps inexperienced production people that thought a boom operator, and unfortunately this is what happens, it's terrible, but they think that a boom operator is just a guy or a girl that holds a mic above a set and that anyone could do it. What we wanted to do was to exhibit the close parity between what a first assistant camera technician does and a first assistant sound technician does so that our boom operators firstly were paid a better rate. And secondly, they were respected in the same way as a focus puller are. So would you say it's been successful in that it has become adapted by many more productions, producers, or is it still a fight depending at what level you're working on? It's sometimes a fight, but it's an easier fight now. It's become established. And like everything, once things become established, it becomes the norm. Yeah. But it's, it's an issue that we've all needed to keep together on. And one great thing that I think we have in the UK over the last few years is that we've all started to recognise each other more as colleagues rather than competition. Mm. And so the great thing that has happened, particularly with social media and so on and so forth, is that we all interchange ideas better. We all talk a lot. I think that helps a lot in all negotiations if everybody knows how everybody else is working. And, and regarding the two booms and the fact that it's being accepted now on big movies in the UK, what I think, just like going full circle with the mixing, has we've gone full circle with ADR. Directors kind of 10 or 15 years ago, when we first started shooting two or three cameras, there was this kind of idea among some directors that, well, if we're going to shoot it like that, we're just going to have to loop it and we'll get some sound, but we, we accept that we're going to have to loop. And what I find is happening now is 
They've gone full circle. They've realized that we've now got 24 tracks, that we've got radio mics that actually, if they're rigged well, can actually sound pretty good. We're not going to have dropouts and range issues on radios anymore. The DPAs sound so much better than anything else. I know I keep on about that, but they do. And what directors have started to recognize is that they're not necessarily going to have to loop big movies. If they get the right sound team, they get the right sound mixer, and they allow the sound mixer to hire the right crew, they're potentially not going to have to loop a big three-camera, $250 million picture. Whereas I think 10 or 15 years ago, there was an expectation they may have to. I think also, though, in reality, although you know it's hard to get people to admit it, it's often a lot cheaper and easier to paint out a boom or to do a visual effects to get rid of something nowadays than it is to have to get your main actor into an ADR theatre and, and all the work that that involves. I mean, that's a whole other conversation, which is really interesting because a couple of the directors I've worked with recently have said, here's the thing. If I ADR a performance, I'm going to have to pay for it and it's potentially going to harm the performance. If I have to paint out a boom, I'm going to have to pay for it, but it's not going to harm the performance. It's a no-brainer. Of course, we're going to paint out the boom. It just needs a bit of a mindset, though, yep. because I think it costs about 700 quid to paint out a room. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a very easy kind of thing. But often that's not within, you know, the way that visual effects are budgeted. Of course, if it's already a visu- visual effects shot, then in theory it costs nothing. And I, um, I think because you've worked with filmmakers, directors time and time again, when you do go to them and say, listen, this is important for this scene, can we paint this out? normally you get a positive reaction. Yeah. When you don't have that relationship, it becomes a little bit more of a fight. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, uh, want to just touch on uh, diversity. How do you see the industry going here in terms of bringing younger people in to be able to work across the sound department? I've just brought, uh, I've just brought our first female member of my crew in. Um, I've recognized that there is an issue in the film industry, particularly in sound. In, in fact, luckily in sound, we're a little bit ahead of other departments, but just not through any choice of my own, but because it was always me, Arthur and Robin, um, and I'm very, vo- very loyal to them and they're going to be with me forever. There hasn't been much room for anyone else. But on the movie that I'm just about to do, which is Cats with Tom Hooper, we've brought in, in fact, we haven't just brought in one female, we've brought in three females. Um, we've got a very big crew. We've got a crew of 17 people on Cats, which uh, we can talk about uh, at a different stage. But we've brought in three females because I honestly think that we need to start encouraging uh, more females into sound. I think that the sound department is an extremely, uh, you know, it's, it, it's a creative place where females can excel. And I think the also the idea that sound people have to be big, strong, tall boom operators, it's not quite so relevant now because we are using more radio mics. I think that although we've had some absolutely outstanding female boom operators, uh, what I would say is, is that there has historically been this th- mindset that boom operators need to be big and strong and male. And I think that now we have to recognize that we should open our our blinkers and recognize that sometimes the best person to send into the trailer to Radio Mike the Actress is going to be a female. And I think that a sound department can benefit from having both sexes. I certainly agree with that. But I think I think we all have a responsibility as well to look at diversity. All of those diversity, bullying, all of those kind of issues, we all have a responsibility to make it our concern. I know Simon and I have both mentored quite a few different people over the years, and I always try to take part in some kind of mentoring program. The last person I was mentoring is now doing extremely well. He's a young um, Rwandan who is in this country. And um, after mentoring for a year, I then took him onto my crew. He's been on my crew as a trainee, and he's now off and running on his own and doing extremely well. I think the, the whole point is that we just have to make it our responsibility. And in terms of the future, what are your plans, Chris? Do you ever think that you'll maybe go into teaching when you decide to lay the headphones down? Yes, um, and I've got no intention to lay the headphones down so much, but I do do quite a lot of I, I do quite a lot on behalf of the academy of um, of talks and teaching, and um, and wherever I can, I, I often try to go into film schools and and talk. It's so busy here. That's the problem. This is my fourth movie this year, which is means I've had very little time off, but um, I certainly intend to try to make some more time to do that. And when you go into 
classrooms? Do you find people are very receptive? They want to hear the stories? Of course. And I think I think it's also important to make it, to show kids that it's achievable. You know, I usually try to explain my background and where I've come from and how I started and, and that all you need is a passion and that anything is achievable. I think it's for too long people have the the idea that it's uh, you know it's only for certain people um this industry and it has to be open to everybody i mean you were talking about that uh, chance meeting in the forecourt of a petrol station changed exactly. your life you know uh, when i went to my principal in school when i was 18 and i knew i really didn't want to go on to do a electronic engineering course i wanted to find a course in film, television, he said to me, this is all nonsense, pie in the sky. But it's so important to give positive direction, to encourage people in this business because there are so many naysayers. And you had your father who was so instrumental in the path you've chosen. And uh, it's great that you both can go out there and keep this alive and encourage others to pursue whatever it is they want to do, whether it be in sound or other. Yeah, I mean, like Chris, I'm I'm mentoring people all of the time. I'm mentoring a, a young man who's come to the UK from China, who's at the National Film School, who BAFTA have asked me to mentor, um, who's called Robert Chen. He's he's doing a great job at the moment. He comes to visit me on set whenever he can. I like what's going on at the National Film School in the UK. I like what's going on at Bournemouth University. And whenever I can get in there to kind of do a seminar or teach a day, I will do. I really enjoy talking about my career. I really enjoy passing on, you know, the trials and tribulations. And again, I want to let people know that the, you know, the film industry needs good people. It needs passionate people. It needs people that are hungry and it needs people that want to do a great job. And it doesn't matter what sex you are, where whereabouts in the world you're from. We're a big industry and we're growing all of the time and there's room for you. And, you know, it's not out of reach. I'd also say it's a two-way street. I've learned a lot from youngsters that I have working with me. And, you know, I think it's very important to learn from different ages, different cultures. And I think that's what's also very important. It's not just a matter of a one-way thing. We benefit a lot from diversity as well. And in just the same way as you've seen how London's changed, how London is such a diverse city, that's what makes it a great city. What I've learned from sitting with Bill Kaplan, David McMillan, Chris Monroe and Simon Hayes is that the conversations could always go so much longer and that the stories are incredibly insightful. Please check back to the CAS website for a standalone interview on Simon's work on Les Miserables. It's another example of adapting to a director's vision for sound, despite concerns as to how it could be done and the importance of collaboration.